Since kings are in the word of God itself called gods, as being his lieutenants and vice-regents on earth, and so adorned and furnished with some sparkles of the divinity, to compare some of the works of God the great king towards the whole and general world, to some of his works towards me, and this little world of my dominions. dominions. Welcome, friends, to a history of the King James Bible podcast. To find more episodes and information, just go to our website, www.ahistoryofthekingjamesbiblepodcast.com. Now here is G.K. with the latest episode. As my right is united in my person, so my marshes are united by land and not by sea, so that there is no difference betwixt them. There is no more difference betwixt London and Edinburgh, yea, not so much as betwixt Inverness or Aberdeen and Edinburgh. For all our marshes are dry, and there be fairies betwixt them. But my course must be betwixt both, to establish peace and religion, and wealth, betwixt both the countries. And as God has joined the right of both the kingdoms in my person, so ye may be joined in wealth, in religion, in hearts, and affections. Ye must not doubt, but as I have a body as able as any king in Europe, whereby I am able to travel, so I shall visit you every three years at the least, or more often, as I shall occasion. For so I have written in my book, directed to my son, and it were a shame to me not to perform that thing which I have written. Think not of me as a king going from one part to another, but as a king lawfully called, going from one part of the isle to the other, that so your comfort may be the greater. This was James's last speech to the Scottish people before he headed off to London and his coronation, where he would be declared the King of England and Scotland, oh, and also Ireland. Hello and welcome to episode 5 of A History of the King James Bible Podcast, James, the King of England. I have to acknowledge that despite their titles, episodes 3 and 4 were most certainly not the end of the next 40 years of James's life. For those of us who might be a little bit picky, let's agree to subtitle this episode The Next 40 Years Part C, but we won't tell anyone so that way it doesn't become official. On the 24th of March, 1603, Queen Elizabeth I died. Eight hours later, James VI of Scotland was declared James I, King of England. James took his time, in fact he took a month, to travel to his new throne. Along the way he stopped in many major centres, generously releasing those in prison except anyone charged with murder, treason or Romish disloyalty. What a champ! During James's slow trip to London, he was presented along the way with what became known as the Millenary Petition. It was called this because it was supposed to have been signed by 1,000 ministers. The petition outlined the cause of the Puritans who asserted that the Anglican Church needed further reformation. 
They wanted to rid the church of what they saw as some of its remaining Romish features, such as confirmation, the sign of the cross during baptism, bowing at the name of Jesus. And um, I still have a problem with this one. I still do this sometimes. It's a, it's a habit I picked up after attending Catholic school for a while as a kid. And I can tell you it was enforced heavy-duty style by the penguins at the school I was at. Uh, it was a convent school where all the teachers were penguins or nuns, as they are sometimes want to be called. And uh, it's a hard habit to break when it's um, uh, forced onto you as a child. Anyway, back to the Puritans' petition. The Puritans wanted to see the removal of the cap and surplice and more. The surplice is a garment in the form of a tunic of white linen or cotton fabric reaching to the knees with wide or moderately wide sleeves. The petition led ultimately to the Hampton Court Conference, which itself led to the translation of the Bible in the vernacular. We will come to the Hampton Court Conference in an upcoming episode, and that will launch us into our examination of the authorised version or the King James Bible. It was decided that the royal family would arrive in England separately, so while James was down in England, Queen Anne took the opportunity to visit Stirling Castle, where the heir, Henry, was being cared for. This was her first visit there in five years, and it seems her intention was to take Henry with her when she left. But if you remember, Henry's carers had been solemnly warned by James not to hand him over to anyone, not even the Queen. So they resisted her. The Ambassador of Venice reported that Anna was so furious at being refused, she belted her own belly with such force that she later miscarried. Shortly after, Anne wrote to James, accusing him of believing she was involved in Catholic and Spanish plots. She accused him of not loving her and only marrying her because of her high birth. James sent her a letter in response, denying that anyone had accused her of any involvement in a Catholic or Spanish plot. Furthermore, he wrote, Leave these froward womanly apprehensions, for I thank God I carry that love and respect unto you which by the law of God and nature I ought to do my wife and mother of my children. But not for ye are a king's daughter, for whether ye were a king's or a cook's daughter, ye must be all alike to me, being once my wife. For the respect of your honourable birth and descent I married you, but the love and respect I now bear you is because that ye are my married wife, and so partaker of my honour, as of my other fortunes. I beseech you, excuse my rude plainness in this, for casting up of your birth is a needless, impertinent argument to me. God is my witness. I ever preferred you to all my bands, much more than to any subject. Isn't that sweet? Honestly, almost brought a tear to me old eyes. We best move on now. After some negotiations, Henry was handed over to Anne and they both travelled to England to be with James. It was a compromise on James's part, no doubt. But which husband has never had to compromise to keep his bride happy? Even kings do, lads. Even kings do. James's accession to the throne was somewhat spoiled by an outbreak of the plague in London, 
So despite the fact that his coronation went ahead in July 1603, the much-expected public celebrations didn't happen until March 1604. The public went wild about James and his family. They were almost as excited to catch a glimpse of the young Prince Henry as they were of James himself, something he had also experienced when he was the heir to the Scottish throne. Once they were able to observe him close at hand, early English impressions of the king were highly favorable. The verdict of the lawyer, Roger Wilbraham, was typical. The king is of the sharpest wit and invention, ready and pithy speech, an exceeding good memory of the sweetest, pleasantest, and best nature that ever I knew, desiring nor affecting anything but true honor. Before meeting him, the Venetian ambassador, Giovanni Carlo Scaramelli, had heard on all sides that he is a man of letters and business, fond of the chase and of writing, sometimes indulging in play. These qualities attract men to him and render him acceptable to the aristocracy. Besides English, he speaks Latin and French perfectly, and understands Italian quite well. He is capable of governing, being a prince of culture and intelligence above the common. When he was granted his first audience with the new king at Greenwich in May 1603, Scaramelli provided a vivid portrait of James. I found all the counsel about his chair and infinity of other lords almost in an attitude of adoration. His majesty rose and took six steps towards the middle of the room, and then drew back one, after making me a sign of welcome with his hand. He then remained standing up while he listened to me attentively. He was dressed in grey silver satin, quite plain, with a cloak of black tabernet, reaching below his knees and lined with crimson. He had his arm in a white sling, the result of a fall from his horse. From his dress he would have been taken for the meanest of his courtiers, a modesty he affects had it not been for a chain of diamonds around his neck and a great diamond in his hat. Sorry for the interruption of the narrative here, but uh, I just couldn't resist pointing out that when I read this portion to my wife, um, she said it sounds like like James was the king of bling. And if you look at it, how it's put here, um, you know, he's dressed rather casually, but he's got a diamond necklace and a large diamond in his hat. So that's James, the king of bling. From his dress, he would have been taken for the meanest of his courtiers, a modesty he affects had it not been for a chain of diamonds around his neck and a great diamond in his hat. Others had minor reservations, although he came across immediately as mentally alert, witty to conceive, and very ready of speech. In Sir Thomas Lake's estimation, he was surprisingly not given to using great majesty nor solemnities in his accesses. Francis Bacon, an ambitious lawyer and courtier whose brother Anthony had facilitated relations between Essex and James, and who hoped to flourish under the new regime, opined that his speech is swift and cursory, and in the full dialect of his country, and in point of business short, in point of discourse, large. He is thought somewhat general in his favors, and his virtue of access is rather because he is much abroad, and in press than that he giveth easy audience about serious things. Bacon's one reservation was that James showed a lack of foresight in calling for advice about the time past than of the time to come. On the day itself, all of London turned out to acclaim the king, queen, and prince as they rode through the city, 
The streets seemed to be paved with men, wrote Decker. Stalls instead of rich wares were set out with children. Open casements filled up with women. All glass windows taken down, but in their places sparkled so many eyes that had it not been the day, the light which reflected from them was sufficient to have made one. But James was no Elizabeth, who had lapped up the crowd's adulation and given them what they wanted in return. His reluctance was quickly noticed. As Arthur Wilson recalled, he was not like his predecessor, the late queen of famous memory, that with a well-pleased affection met her people's acclamations. He endured the day's brunt with patience, being assured he should never have such another. There were, of course, other such days to come, but James made less and less efforts to play his part. Afterwards, in his public appearances, wrote Wilson, the accesses of the people made him so impatient that he often dispersed them with frowns. G'day, I just want to chime in here to say a couple of things before we move on. First of all, I want to give a heartfelt thanks to Jonathan Hansen, who sent me a page from a pre-1650 King James Bible. Um, I'll put a photo of it and some other examples up on the website at some point in the future. Um, thank you so much, Jonathan, for your generous gift. Next, if you happen to be in the Lima, Ohio area, be sure to tune in to WTTPLP 101.1 FM The Voice, Lima's Christian Radio. Or you can find them on the web at www.wttpfm.com. That's www.wttpfm.com. Also, I must beg your indulgence if I'm a little flat in some parts of this episode. Um, I had a visit to the hospital last week and I guess I must be recovering still. And sometimes I do sound a bit flat and I will sound a bit flat as, um, like many of us, I have a few health issues, but like many of us, I intend to box on. Um, most of the readings this, in this episode, again, come from Stuart's The Cradle King. I highly recommend it if you can get your hands on a copy. And remember to go to our website and check out the references page to see where most of my info comes from. Um, don't forget to find us on iTunes and leave us a rating. Also, go to the website and put us on follow so you can receive any updates. The web address is www.ahistoryofthekingjamesbiblepodcast.com. Um, please share the series with your friends. And remember, everything is for free and there's nothing for sale. Okay, so let's continue. Next, we're going to get some insight into the inner workings of James's government. This is extremely interesting as we can see how the change in monarchs also brought with it a change in how access to the king became limited by a change in the way the privy chamber and the bedchamber were used. Despite their relative absence from the top government posts, the Scots made their presence felt in other ways. For James's ascension to the English throne produced an important shift in the style of government. Reduced to its most basic components, political influence could be measured by access to the physical presence, and therefore to the ear of the sovereign. Under Henry VIII, the most intimate space in the royal household was the privy chamber, and within the privy chamber there had been the even more private privy lodgings centering on the king's bedchamber. When Elizabeth came to the throne, the fact that the sovereign was now a woman, who had to be surrounded at certain times by other women rather than her counselors, had meant that the privy lodgings, where she spent much of her time, were divided from the privy chamber by a withdrawing chamber. As a result, 
The privy lodgings lost much of their explicitly political tone, and the privy chamber became more formal, but also politically influential. With James's ascension to the throne, however, there came to the English court what has been dubbed the revival of the entourage. Under the new king, it was not the privy chamber, but the bedchamber and the men it contained that became the focus of attention. The bedchamber controlled the more intimate aspects of serving the king, while the privy chamber became a more formal, ceremonial space. Whereas attempts were made to keep the privy chamber roughly half Scots and half English, the bedchamber was comprised almost entirely of Scottish courtiers, with the sole exception of Sir Philip Herbert. Lennox was steward of the household, Sir George Holm, master of the wardrobe, John Murray, keeper of the privy purse, and Sir Thomas Erskine, a cousin of Mar, captain of the guard. This last appointment was particularly resented, since the post had been confiscated from the popular English courtier, Sir Walter Raleigh. It was the absolute dominance of Scots in James's immediate household that particularly galled English commentators like Gervasi Hollis, who wrote of James, bringing with him a crew of necessitous and hungry Scots, and filling every corner of the court with these beggarly bluecaps, referring to the blue woolen bonnets that the Scots were traditionally reputed to wear. His kinsman, Sir John Hollis, complained in 1610 that the Scottish monopolized his princely person, standing like mountains betwixt the beams of his grace and us, urging that the bedchamber should be shared as well to those of our nation as to them. The exclusion from the bedchamber had serious administrative implications, since the household ordinances stated that no person of what condition soever do at any time presume or to be admitted to come to us in our bedchamber, but such as are sworn of it without our special license, except the princes of our blood. Some of James's leading government officials were effectively excluded from the regular access to the king that was constantly enjoyed by his bedchamber staff. Even secretaries of state would be granted audiences in the outer privy chamber or withdrawing chamber, with the king emerging from his inner bedchamber for the purpose. In the words of the Venetian agent in May 1603, no Englishman, be his rank what it may, can enter the presence chamber without being summoned, whereas the Scottish lords have free entree of the privy chamber and more especially at the toilet. When James made the journey south to London, Upon his ascension in 1603, expectations had been high for his performance as sovereign. Our virtuous king makes our hopes to swell, his actions suitable to the time, and his natural disposition, enthused Thomas Wilson, a Cecil protege in June. But it was soon discovered that James's natural disposition led him away from what many regarded as his kingly duties. Sometimes he comes to counsel, Wilson reported, but most times he spends in fields and parks and chases, chasing away idleness by violent exercise and early rising, wherein the sun seldom prevents him. Or as the Venetian ambassador Giovanni Carlo Scaramelli put it, the king, in spite of all the heroic virtues ascribed to him when he left Scotland and inculcated by him in his books, seems to have sunk into a lethargy of pleasures and will not take heed of matters of state, he remits everything to the council and spends his time in the house alone or in the country at the chase. As we've just heard, James was very different to his cousin Lizzie. Where she was very much a hands-on ruler, James was more of the 
let the council handle the business while we go hunting kind of guy. It's been calculated that during his reign in England, James spent about half of his time hunting or activities that led to that end, and that most of that time was with the very few people that he allowed to go with him. James loved to hunt, and in his defence, when questioned why he spent so much time away from the affairs of state, he said that hunting was good for his health because it helped with his exercise and the clean country air was much better than being in the crowded city. I think I agree with him. I live out in the bush, but I'm not a king. But I'm still Her Majesty's loyal subject. Just as an aside, in the Westminster system of government, you have the governing party, those who form the government by attaining the majority, and opposite them you have Her Majesty's loyal opposition. Isn't that something? Moving on now. There were many complaints made against James because of his because of his absence from the halls of power. Some were formal. I cannot stress enough how much it was an issue for his council and ministers. The man was absent more than he was present at court, and when he was absent, he was a-hunting. This absence also had an effect on the Queen. It was noted by many at the time that though they loved each other, the King and Queen were more often apart than together. Him hunting and her enjoying her own little court where she loved to dance and attend many a mask. There are rumours that Anne was leaning toward converting to Catholicism, but a noted Catholic commentator at the time stated, Sure, we would love to have her on our team, but she is so much a proddy, we can't even get near her. Not a word-for-word quote, I'm sure you will understand. Speaking of Catholics, let's now discuss the gunpowder plot. The gunpowder plot of 1605 is perhaps one of the best-known and audacious of assassination plots of the early modern era, fondly remembered under this day in many of the old colonies as Guy Fawkes Night or Bonfire Night or simply Cracker Night. Sadly for most kids in Australia now, you can no longer buy fireworks and have some fun blowing up the neighbour's letterbox on Cracker Night. Something about being too dangerous and starting too many fires in this driest of continents. What a shame. When James came to the throne, the Catholic population were hopeful of change, as indeed were so many other sects. But by late 1605, they had become so disenchanted with the lack of progress in their favour that a plot was hatched to blow up the House of Lords during the opening of Parliament on the 5th of November, 1605. Now, since this is such a well-known plot, we won't spend too much time on it here, except to hit a couple of things of interest. The intent of the explosion was to kill James, Anne, and Prince Henry, the heir to the throne, and the Privy Council, and many more. But that wasn't all there was to it. The plot also included the kidnapping of James's daughter, the Princess Elizabeth, who is being cared for in Warwickshire, and to place her on the throne as a Catholic queen. The conspirators rented a house in May 1604 that backed onto the Houses of Parliament with the intention of tunnelling under the House of Lords. After months of hard work to this end, they rented the place next door, which included access to the space beneath the intended target via an undercroft, which back in the day was a storage cellar. They then over time set to gathering several barrels of gunpowder, 
In fact, they apparently ended up being caught with more than enough to do the job. The whole thing came undone when one of the conspirators who had a brother-in-law in the House of Lords sent him an anonymous letter warning him of the upcoming shenanigans. On the 26th of October, Lord Monteagle was passed a note by one of his servants. The Lord had him read it aloud. My Lord, out of the love that I bear to some of your friends, I have a care of your preservation. Therefore, I should advise you, as you tender your life, to devise your excuse to shift off your attendance at this Parliament. For God and man have concurred to punish the wickedness of this time. And think not slightly of this advertisement, that means warning, but retire yourself into your country, where you may expect the event in safety. For though there be no appearance of any stir, yet I say, they shall receive a terrible blow this Parliament, and yet they shall not see who hurts them. This counsel is not to be contemned, because it may do you good, and can do you no harm, for the danger is past so soon as you have burnt the letter, and I hope God will give you the grace to make good use of it, to whose holy protection I commend you. Lord Monteagle then shared the note with four other members of the Privy Council, who decided to sit on it and let the conspiracy develop. Meanwhile, Actually, just a second, speaking of meanwhile, can you guess where James was while this was happening? Did some of you say hunting? I'm pretty sure I heard it from here. James had been on a hunting trip that was to keep him away from London until November. After he was shown the note on his return, the king agreed the plot was to be allowed to develop and a search for the bad guys was delayed until the 4th of November. On the evening of the 4th of November... A certain Johnny Johnson was discovered standing guard over a pile of faggots or sticks bundled together for fuel. Now John Johnson turned out to be none other than Guy Fawkes and from here the whole thing unravelled with the other plotters on the run and after a half-hearted attempt at kidnapping Princess Lizzie who had already been removed for safety's sake they were either shot during their capture or they faced execution at a later date. The plot was to do such widespread harm that of it, James had said, Catesby and his fellows intended not only the destruction of my person, nor of my wife and posterity only, but of the whole body of the state in general, wherein should neither have been spared, or distinction made to young nor of old, of great nor of small, of man nor of woman, the whole nobility, the whole reverend, clergy, bishops, and most part of the good preachers, the most part of the knights and gentry, the whole judges of the land, with most of the lawyers and the whole clerks. Um, one outcome of the plot that I think we should discuss was the psych psychological effect that it had upon uh, Princess Elizabeth and James himself. It was reported that Elizabeth subsequently became ill and troubled and that James, after recollecting all of the near misses in his life, took little more care about appearing in public. And uh, he became a lot more careful after this. Now, he had had several near misses and plots on his life right from when he was a baby and, as we know, from in his mother's belly. Actually, let's take a little look of what he did say about that. On the 9th of November, James appeared in Parliament to offer thanks to God for the great and miraculous delivery he, ha he hath granted to me and to you all and consequently to the whole body of this estate. He begged the members' indulgence to explore a conceit of his, that since kings are in the word of God itself called gods, 
as being his lieutenants and vice-regents on earth, and so adorned and furnished with some sparkles of the divinity, to compare some of the works of God the great King, towards the whole and general world, to some of his works towards me, and this little world of my dominions. Just as God punished sin by the general purgation which only Noah and his family survived, James may justly compare these two great and fearful domesdays, wherewith God threatened to destroy me and all of you of this little world in me, the Gowrie plot and this new gunpowder plot. He, amongst all other kings, had been subject to daily tempests of innumerable dangers, not only ever since my birth, but even as I may justly say, before my birth and while I was in my mother's belly. A rare reference to the trauma of the Rizzio murder. Now at this point we might move on from the gunpowder plot, but um, I may come back to it just to touch on it lightly, some more of the outcomes, especially to do with the uh, Catholic people in uh, the British Isles. Uh, We might discuss that um, perhaps at the beginning of episode six. We'll wait and see what happens. Let's now turn to a brief preview of our next episode. In 1604, shortly before the Hampton Court Conference, James called a parliament. Now, before I started this project, it was my understanding that James was a man of peace and a man who wanted unity. As we continue our study of James, I think I can create a good argument that these assertions are true. James's intention of bringing Scotland, Ireland and England under one banner was for the common good of these countries, especially in this area of peace. We'll also see that his ideas about religious unity are for the same reason. James was a man of peace. He wanted to see an end to the continual wars in Europe and the British Isles, and to a certain extent, he was successful. In the next episode, we will explore this aspect of James and a dimension of it that will surprise many, I'm sure. Please join me for episode 6 which will be our last episode about James in particular before we move on to examining how the authorised version of the Bible came about and examine those who translated it and more. There's always more.
verdict of the lawyer wow (laughs) okay there's a blooper for you (laughs) you're gonna get plenty of bloopers out of this gk i can tell you (laughs) okay let's do it again (laughs) okay this is getting silly now gk i know you're having a good laugh